Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 55,573. That's the number of Royal Air Force Bomber Command aircrew who lost their lives in the fight against fascism during the Second World War. And if that statistic isn't terrifying enough, well, if you're in a Lancaster bomber, it was worse, with a 46% combat attrition rate. In this episode of the History Hit World Wars podcast, I have the honour, pleasure of talking to John Henry Meller, who's not only a veteran of Bomber Command, but also a veteran of serving in the Lancaster bombers during the Second World War. John takes us on a journey through what it was like to serve in a Lancaster, the roar of those four engines, and the threat of serving over hostile enemy territory. We're also joined by John's wife, Barbara, and his daughter, Caroline, who helped him write a new fantastic book called The Boy With Only One Shoe, an illustrated memoir of wartime life with Bomber Command. Now, I urge you to go and get this book. It benefits the Royal Air Force Benevolent Fund, but it also tells us about what life was like in pre-war Britain and how that changed during the wartime period. It is a pleasure to have them on the show, and I know you're going to find this one absolutely fascinating. Today, we have the whole Mellor family with us on the World Wars podcast. We have John, we have Caroline, and we have Barbara. Thanks to all three of you for coming on the show. Oh, pleasure. Thank you very much. No, not a problem at all. Thank you. So there's so much to talk about in your book, a book I know that all three of you worked on, but really focuses on your experience and your life prior to the Second World War, John, and of course, your experiences in the RAF during the Second World War. But let's start by talking about the hardship that the UK had to face following the First World War. And, of course, you had your youth as a boxer, but you also had an early fondness for the RAF. So let's start there. What was the allure of the RAF and air power to you? Well, in the first place, when I was in school, I went for a flight in a Tiger Moth and the cadets and thoroughly enjoyed it. I was working at Burton Wood Aerodrome before it went over to the Americans. And there we were working on Hamdens and different aircraft. And I thoroughly fell in love with the aircraft in particular. And then we got informed that I was on a reserved occupation. And that did it. I wanted to join the RAF. 
so I left. But before I left, we'd been working at Burton Wood for 24 hours a day on quite a lot of occasions. But we didn't get paid overtime. We got a promissory note to be paid in the future for all the time we did. And that didn't arrive until I was in the Metropolitan Police after I'd left the RAF. And that was around about £10, which <laughs> really, £10 was a lot of money in those days. Yeah, absolutely. All we were getting, after we paid everything as far as to the police, which you had to pay, uh, we were getting about £5 a week to start with. And so that £10 came in very handy. <laughs> yeah, no, I bet it did. I met a lot of foreigners in the RAF. They were people who'd escaped from their country, France, Germany, even Germany and Poland, Netherlands. So it was interesting talking to them and hearing what they had to say about the Germans, which wasn't very good. (laughs) Again, that inspired me. But as soon as I was told that I was on a reserved occupation, I quickly got out. Fortunately, a friend of the family had a business in Warrington and his person had just left and he gave me opportunity to gain a job. Everything just came in fine. It couldn't have been better. And so I went to work for him. And there I was only working nine to five every day. And that gave me time to go for boxing lessons and even going to dances where my sister had to pick her up because she was older than me by two years. But my father insisted she could only go dancing unless I picked her up at night time. I took her home. <laughs> yep, sounds like me and my little sister from <laughs> back in the day. I completely understand that going up in a tiger moth is going to give you some allure for the air power and the RAF. I was lucky enough to be taken up in one by the RAF Benevolent Fund a couple of years ago, and they are fantastic machines. But there was also a political drive there for you as well, because you were working with people who were fleeing Nazi oppression. You were working with those who had escaped fascism. That's right. How much did you know about the persecution of the Jews or people in Poland when you joined the RAF? No, until I went there, I learned very little, very little indeed. But there, they did speak freely and openly. At Burton Wood, when you were working... At Burton Wood, yes. I was working on the electrics on the aircraft. Alongside them. That's right. And that's when they would sit in their coffee breaks. When we had a rest during the night time, we had an hour off every now and again for rest periods and something to eat. And that's when they would talk. And we talked very freely, too, about the bitterness about the Nazis in Germany. And you just felt you had to do your bit, because although you were in a reserved occupation there, you just thought, well, as a young fit man, you could do more. And the thought of well, that happening in the UK is so terrifying. Well, you just think, exa- well, I've got to exactly, yes. do as much as um, I can to stop this. <laughs> it was fantastic to listen to those people. It made you want to be in the Air Force, one of the forces anyway, to help out. That's fascinating, to move from a reserved occupation and then, of course, to hear about just some of the horrors that people have gone through and the enemy that you were fighting and how that drives you to leave that reserved occupation and to join up. Before I was 18, I applied then to join the RAF and I went to Padgate, which was fortunately only about half a mile away from where I was living for my interview, which was excellent. And I met a number of the boxers from Padgate who I boxed against. And during the interview, I felt I was going to pass. <laughs> you had that feeling. And when I came back a few days later, I got a note 
from the RAF saying, you pass your PNB, pilot navigator bombing man. And I was delighted. And then I got a note only about a fortnight later saying the PNB scheme was absolutely full up and I would have to wait some considerable time. But there were vacancies for wireless operators, air gunners. So after discussing it with my parents, I wrote off and said I would join right away as a wireless operator or air gunner. And within a few days, I got called up. (laughs) Again, he could have delayed going into combat by going on a pilot or navigator's course. Well, a friend of mine who did volunteer to wait, who also passed at the same time, from the same school, um, he had just finished training as a pilot as the war finished. (laughs) They did all the training out in Canada. That's right. We'd been training out in Canada, but it'd taken about two years before he was joined because there were so many applicants for it from around the world. It was amazing. Australians, New Zealanders. Canadians. It was absolutely fantastic. Polish. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely fantastic, honestly. All wanting to join in the fight. All wanting to join the RAF. Yeah. Yeah, but it was amazing to think that young men were leaving their countries from the Caribbean and everywhere. You couldn't help but respect no, people for doing that. You're not in the war zone That's and right. you think, right, I and, and believe so much in this that I want to fight against I lost their lives. I lost their lives, I know. It was the same feeling for you, wasn't it? Because again, if you'd chosen to go through the PNB right. route, probably would never have gone into combat. But That's you right. just think, no, i just got to take the fight to make sure that we don't lose this war. Yeah, absolutely. So you joined up as soon as you turned 18, September 1942. And then where were you first based? First of all, we went to London. That was a fair epic, wasn't it? Because you hadn't really left Warrington before that. I'd never left Warrington in my life before. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. So the big smoke of London must have been quite the experience. But on the other hand, it was the first time we saw all the bombing and the destruction in London. And it was strange because on the first day, we marched off to the zoo and then into the restaurant there. And that's where we dined every day. Mind you, it was close to the public and all the most vicious animals had been taken out. But we had to patrol the zoo at night time anyway. It was quite an experience going down to the zoo every day for your meals. <laughs> and you were billeted in these big, expensive apartments, weren't you? Oh, yes. Very expensive apartments. Yes. Were. Yeah. We'd never had baths at home or anything like that. We always had zinc baths in front of the fire. Yes. Most people did. Uh, I never knew of anybody who had a bathroom. Sorry. But there, in these lovely apartments in the zoo... We had everything, showers, baths, <laughs> everything. Couldn't believe it. All on sweet. <laughs> it was absolutely fantastic. <laughs> I also remember being marched off down to the zoo, and then only a couple of days later, because I was in the ATC probably, I was told to march the boys off to the zoo. Well, to be quite honest, I'd been at the back talking all the time. I ain't got a clue, <laughs> really. So I was speaking to one of the boys who was a Londoner, so I put him in the front because he knew the way, and I was just marching along with the rest as well as leading them, but I wasn't. It was this boy in front. See, that's the sign of a good leader, John. Stockley Hall, wasn't it, where you were staying, that had the beautiful apartments that they were first billeted in. So you had your meals at London Zoo, you were staying in Stockney Hall, near to perhaps the most luxury you'd had in your life to this point. But I experienced the first air raid in London. Ah, less luxurious. One weekend we'd been off, and so three of us went off for a walk. 
which was great, seeing all the damage and all that sort of thing. And on the way back, the sirens went, and first of all, we kept on, then we thought, no, unfortunately, it was near the underground, we went down the underground, and you'd never seen or uh, heard anything like it. The singing, people playing piano accordions, mouth organs. Honestly, it was just oh, it was, it was it, an eye everybody was rejoicing. We stayed there for some time after the sirens went for us to go. And then when we came out, not very far down the road, it was all demolition. And I always remember, I can see them now, a couple of old ladies crying their eyes out as they looked at all the debris. But then you have to admire all the rescue services. They're all there, working like mad. And we even volunteered to them. And they said, oh no, go on, get home, and quick. (laughs) We did. Your first real experiences of the war then were seeing the blitz spirit of London, but also that horror that can be delivered on a civilian population as well. Absolutely. I'm seeing the people hard at work and the van giving out cups of tea. And And wrapping people in blankets. Oh yes, the two elderly ladies were being marched off with blankets on their shoulders, still crying their eyes out. And then from that initial training, where were you moved to in the UK? Uh, Bridlington. Ah, Bridlington. And what were you doing there? First of all, it was all paperwork. It was very good, telling us all about what the war had done, what was happening during the war and since the beginning of the war. And um, at the same time, warning us that being air crew was 50-50 chance. In other words, uh, we thought at the time of trying to get some of us out of it, they were warning us straight from the word go. When you were told that, John, was there not part of you that wanted to leave the RAF or leave that section? Did some men leave and turn and join other sections of the military? No, you just wanted to carry on. So you do your bit, whatever it was. Some did, though, didn't they? Yes, you, you found about half did. <laughs> about half did? Yeah, they elected to go on ground crews instead. And I assume the RAF would prefer you to back out at that point than go through the next stage of really quite sophisticated technical training, a lot of expense. So they give you the option to move to a different position now or carry on. Oh, that's right, because when you think it costs about £8,000 for each person to be trained for the air crew. That was a lot of money in those days. He didn't want you going all the way through the training and then dropping out at the last minute. minute. And so it was after Bridlington, after they'd briefed you on what the war was about and what to expect. Was that when you started the technical training? The advanced training, yes, at Gatesbury. And again, even there, a number of the exams. That was the first time as well at Yatesbury where you actually got to fly because even though you'd flown, cadets that had joined with Dad, a lot of them hadn't been in an aeroplane yet. That's right. Unfortunately, a number of them got airsick as soon as they got airborne. So they were taken off anyway and put on ground crew. Right, so you've had the first option where... Men have been told that there's a 50-50 chance you won't come back and lot have stepped down. And then those who have bravely gone on, they've never been in a plane before. So some of them go up, get airsick, and then they're dropped and put to ground crew anyway. That's right, yes. It was a Domini that you went in. Flying Dominies in those days. A biplane. But it was great. I think I could remember my eyes lighting up as soon as we saw this Domini 
road. That's what we're going to fly. fly. <laughs> She's been in the RAF for a while and still haven't seen an aeroplane. Yeah. It, was, it was funny actually because it was like, ooh, lovely, an airplane at last. <laughs> <laughs> but then the first thing they did, rather than put you in the airplane, was teach you how to do a parachute jump. Oh, yes, and of course it was essential to do parachute jumping, but then not from there. We were taken to a large hangar, very high, and we had to climb up piles and piles of step ladders to get to the top. And from there, we had to take hold of a rope and throw ourselves down and roll and then pretend to be hiding the parachute afterwards. <laughs> this is the type of training we were given. <laughs> you never actually did a parachute jump as your training, never, did you? No, no, no. no. When we were on operations at Methward on 149 Squadron, one of the crew, the rear gunner, he was a bit of a comic, really, and quite outspoken. And we were collecting the parachutes, and he says to the rough handing out the parachutes, what happens if this so-and-so thing doesn't open if I have to jump? She said, don't worry, bring it back and we'll change it for another one. <laughs> we all took yeah. the pretty out of him after that. Yeah. <laughs> and I wonder how many poor, worried men were told, if it doesn't work, bring it back. It's a great line to have, isn't it? <laughs> it was really funny, though. So from there then, you went up and you started to go and dodge mountains, right? You were sent in much bigger planes. That's the Hansen in RAF Millam. And when we arrived, we were told that they were looking for this crew up on the mountains there. that come down and there was little hope of them surviving. But what amazed me was the fact that the mountain climbers were all volunteers living around. And they just called on those to go and try and find crew and when you think nothing was ever said about these volunteers and they just all volunteered to go up and climb the mountains and look around in any weather and it must have been horrendous to be the first uh, on the scene know, or something like that wasn't it fantastic yeah. people yeah i did hear that there's quite a number of these volunteers in different areas different places mm. but nothing was ever said about them mm. which i think it should have been yeah. yeah, that is fascinating because there's so many untold heroic stories of the Second World War, but to have to go up into the mountains and search for those crews that have been lost, presumed dead, must have been a brave but harrowing experience. That's right. Apart from a few of the ladies who went up, the men were quite elderly. Yes. They all volunteered. Yeah, be the young ones would be in the forces, wouldn't they? But as I say, they should have been mentioned, I'm sure. You were quite relieved to leave RAF Mellon. It seemed a strange way to train people. We'd heard there's been a number of accidents there. But then one of the instructors told us that the next place we went to, he said that they'd chosen that place on purpose to let you see that you had to avoid high grounds. So, you know, it was all a good experience, really. Hard lesson there. Yeah, hard lesson. Terrible. Perhaps you can tell us what your job involved, your position in the crew, what it was that you had to undertake as part of those early operations and then, of course, in your actual position when you were flying up in the Vickers and the Lancasters. I never volunteered for a wireless operator or gunner. When I was at EHV, they stopped the WAPG and people wanted still to fly and couldn't do the wireless operator course because we had to do 18 months code to be able to do it. They went for the Egan course, so that's where you divided. Yeah, if you could cope with the Morse code, you stayed as a wireless right. operator. That's right, and, and if you uh, couldn't, Yeah, because yes. Morse but code finally, at, um, at speed is hard. <laughs> I, along with a number of others, were doing 24 words a minute. 
That's pretty fast. It's very yeah, fast, yeah. yeah. Mm. You had to do 18, but they mm. wanted people right. who could cope better in the classroom because mm. when you put somebody in a cold aeroplane in battle, it's a different matter mm. trying to concentrate on Morse mm. code then. Well, not only that, it was the clouds and things like that interfering. And so from dodging the mountains, you then moved on to Vickers Wellington bombers. How much of a step up was this in terms of your training? Well, it was great because Wellington was a lovely plane to fly. And it was while we were flying the Wellingtons that we didn't realise what was happening. On one occasion, we were sent up round the French coast. We thought, well, that's strange. It was only later that we realised it was because of the D-Day landings. We were helping to give the Germans the impression that it was going to go along the French coast here. And we weren't told that. We were just told to fly along the French coast and come back again. It was then, only afterwards, we found out why. Wow, so one of your first missions was inadvertently acting as a decoy for the D-Day landings. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yes. definitely. And then you moved on to the Lancasters, the iconic Lancaster bombers, right? Oh, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. It was a different feeling altogether. Even the roar of the Merlin engines as they went into full boost was fantastic. You couldn't mistake the sound. So much so that one passed over here a few months ago and we dashed out. We could recognise it right away. You can't mistake the roar of those engines. They're lovely. On one operation, we didn't realise it at the time, but we came back and it was full of holes. It was a write-off. And then the worst one was the one over Potsdam, Berlin, when we were caught up in searchlights. The port dinner was on fire. All the navigators' equipment was on fire and there's a great big furnace burning down below and the captain said, stand by to bail out. <laughs> I can always remember it. <laughs> I should imagine. One feeling. And it was then that I saw for the first time the faces of all my family. Because I knew, in my own mind, that's the last. And, and you said then, a prayer too, didn't you? Oh yes, and then I started saying the Lord's Prayer. And it's strange because during that time we grabbed the fire extinguisher with the navigator and put the fire out in the navigator's department and all of a sudden the searchlights went out and the pilot had got the port fire out and we started getting away. And I had to take aerial bearings then, pass them over to the navigator to give to the pilot. When we got back there were a few air crew and ground crew about and we swerved off the runway and come to a violent stop. And um, when we got out and looked at the aircraft and all the holes in it, we wondered how the devil, any of us had survived. And the aircraft itself was a complete write-off. We all stayed behind and gave it a pat as we went away. It's a strange feeling you get when you see an aircraft like that, and yet it got us back in one piece. And a great big hole in the fuselage and none of us were injured. It's a miracle. It's such a tight compartment to have a fire in anyway. I mean, a fire on board any aeroplane is That's a right. scary thing, but it's a very small area to That's be right. tackling a major fire. But trying to get an engine fire out mm. as well in those aeroplanes without the wing having caught mm. light and everything else to get There's you back. There's a wolf not very far from us, waiting for aircraft like us. And fortunately... The pilot took a real dive and when he started coming up again we got into cloud and that saved us, there's no doubt about it. To be in an aeroplane and then in cloud 
without any navigation equipment. All the pilot would have been able to do is take an approximate heading. Now, you have no fuel, you've flown to your destination, you've dropped your bombs, you've now got one engine out, which means you're going to be a lot slower going home. Not only that, in that particular cloud, the plane rocked from side to side. You didn't know whether it was upside down or not, (laughs) honestly. It was just rocking from side to side, out of control, really. Um, For an aircraft... To go through what it did, it was fantastic. How long did it take to get back now? You were airborne for almost nine hours on that flight. Again, when we did land, it was surprising because we'd been out so long that the crew next day said to us that there's hardly any fuel left in the tank. John, it sounds like you had one hell of a pilot. Well, he was a flight lieutenant when I first joined with him and then he finished up squadron leader. Strangely enough, because because he was made squadron leader, we moved from 149 squadron to short on 15 squadron. So we moved from 149 to 115. We'd only been there a day, um, had a couple of days off while we were there, and went for a walk around the West Road village where the aerodrome is, and that's when I met my wife. <laughs> she was only 17. 17. <laughs> Sitting by the river under a roof that's in right. village. And <laughs> our rig on a Peter Potter started going out with the girl next door. Next door to me. And they married. Barbara, what were your thoughts when you first met John then and you learned that he was one of the men flying the Lancasters? Well, you see, I lived in the village where all the Lancasters were and they were on the side of the road where we almost lived, parked there. So I was very used to Lancaster bombers being there and we used to watch them taking off and landing and waving to them as they took off. So... I did understand what he was and what he was going through at the time. And when they came back off raids, they used to fly over our house and tip his wings and flash their lights to say they were back. Quite an experience. No one realises what you went through in those days, unless you did it. I loved him at the time. (laughs) (laughs) Still do. (laughs) After 71 years of marriage. (laughs) 71 years, congratulations. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
happens. But thinking back to that period, I can't talk about the Second World War with you without mentioning that 46% combat attrition rate of being in Bomber Command. Isn't it something like over 55,000 people lost their lives as part of Bomber Command during World War II? Was this something that you were presently aware of as you were going through your missions? Oh, yes, because you saw aircraft going down. Every mission we went on, you'd see aircraft being hit by flak. It was just a matter of luck. And you'd see quite a number of aircraft just going down in flames, others just out of control. You got used to it. It's strange. You got so used to it that it became natural. Even seeing people you'd, you'd befriended shot down, but you didn't let it worry you. You couldn't. You yeah. just accepted it. You knew quite well that you could be one of those one day anyway. And always then you just look forward to new faces coming in. It's a strange feeling. Instead of feeling sorry for the people that went down at the time, you just put away from your mind. Otherwise they'd got you down. You never gave it no thought. You didn't dare as much as you could. That's why you said at the time over Berlin, you just didn't feel frightened. You just accepted the fact that that was probably going to be your end. Oh yes, mm. you weren't frightened. You didn't get that frightening at all, and you couldn't see it in any of the crew. Even mm. when it was on fire, they just got about their job. It was something you just seemed to accept, same as probably anybody in the army going into battle. It's what you'd signed up to do, so you'd That's accepted right. that yeah. a long time That's before you got to that point. Right. Really, that you just That's always right. hoped you'd get through. So you managed to get back on a plane with an engine out that sounds like it was probably akin to a cheese grater, and it was on fumes, and you finally managed to get back to base. From this point on, John, when was the war over for you? When were you able to celebrate victory? To tell you the truth, VE Day, we didn't celebrate victory, strangely enough. Not properly, do we? No, because you're still training for the Japanese war. So much so that we were doing escape exercises. That was funny, really, wasn't yes. it? Yes. It was on one escape exercise and they dropped us off, goodness knows where, because they had us down on the lorry and they just drove us off. We had a compass. In the middle of the night, wasn't it? So we hadn't got a clue where we were in the middle of this great big forest. And then most of the people went off in pairs and some went off as groups and that sort of thing. But I and another couple, I think it was, went off individually. And I always remember coming out of the wood and crossing over a ditch into a farm and falling over a bull. Now that <laughs> frightened me to death because the bull roared. <laughs> but it was these... Rope was holding the bow, thank goodness. I tore away from there as fast as I could. And then when I got to the farm, going through the farm gates, there's a lot of geese, and they started making a hell of a noise. And then cracked the door of the farm opened, and could barely see the figure there, but he had a gun and he was firing it. <laughs> he obviously thought it was a poacher or a wild animal or something after his geese. But again, another experience. Anyway, after travelling for some more distance, following the compass, I found I was near to Barbara's place. So I went in through the back door, which was always open, and I lay on the settee and fell asleep. And I was woken up by the family and went to bed. When I got up, a nice big meal waiting for me. It was me on an escape exercise. <laughs> then my future father-in-law, 
a lovely man. Everybody loved him, there's no doubt yeah. about it. He was really respected in the village. He says to me, well, where are you going from here? So I told him where I should go. I said, I know where New Market is, but I haven't got a clue where this place is. So I said, oh, don't worry, I'll take you. Some of the fields were full of crops. He took me right across the crops. And he says, oh, it's all right. He said, that belongs to one of my relations, and that one belongs to so-and-so, and that one belongs to so-and-so. <laughs> Went right across these crops and kept on going. And all of a sudden I heard a blinking cockerel crying out in the distance. And I could see it was getting a bit light. And he said, all right, don't worry, we're nearly there. Then he opened the gate and says, that's your destination, and pointed to this place. And he says, don't forget, going through the back door. It's always unlocked. <laughs> and I can remember there was this officer and sergeant just stood there looking at me. Well, how did you get in here? <laughs> Looking smart, with your uniform all clean and tidy, well-fed, well-slept. Because they'd got all the service police and all that sort out looking for and stopping them. I think they were all arrested at some time or another. Because even in front of this place, you had them there. (laughs) But it didn't happen (laughs) back. And there were very genuine complaints made by a lot of aircrew because they were interrogated by the RDF police on Japanese lines and they were all annoyed because what they had to go through during this interrogation. I kept my mouth closed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is amazing, isn't it? You managed to really dodge it there a bit and get through unscathed. That's fantastic. Because we were definitely going out there, all, all we were doing was waiting for the Lincolns, the modification of the Lancaster. Mm. You can totally tell the difference but it had a longer range span as far as travelling was concerned. And that was why we were waiting for the Lincolns before we went out to fight the Japanese. But we were given all the instructions about the Japanese, how they were treated, air crew in particular. You were treated as spies, and weren't you, rather so, than um, as, we as soldiers? We were given cyanide tablets to put up our backsides, take one of those rather than be interrogated by the Japanese. And we were told about the Ulichets. Tell us some more about that. The Japanese <laughs> used to cut off his testicles and that while he was still alive. And the Gulli chips were a lot of money. They told us if we were caught by the Japanese, fight to the last and take the cyanide tablets, if you were accidentally caught. But if you got found anybody who would help you back to any of our allies, in that case, you'd give them this Gulli chip, which gave them a lot of money getting you there. It was quite an experience. So you didn't celebrate, did you? No, I didn't celebrate the day's war because we were thinking about the Japanese war. It was still going. And when were you told that you wouldn't be going? Well, as soon as the war was finished, the atomic bomb by the Americans. That's what they did. And so it was that final act by the Enola Gay in August 1945 that really meant that men like you in your Lincolns and your bombers would not have to be sent out to have that final brutal war of attrition against the Japanese who would not surrender. The Lincolns came in very handy because after that we were flying out to troubled parts, Egypt in particular. We had the problems in the Suez Canal quite a long time afterwards and we were flying out to Egypt, Iraq, Sudan. Before that though we were bringing back prisoners of war from Juvencourt in France. Each time it was unfortunate because you saw all these prisoners of war all down, hardly looks on their faces, sitting out, waiting to be picked up. 
and yet it took ages. The Russians were patrolling all the time with their guns showing. It took ages, really, to even fill up one aircraft. That really is something that we neglect from the historiography, because we can talk about the combat missions, of course, but when the war ends, you have to then bring everybody back home and to make sure that the prisoners of war can come back to their families. How long did you serve in that role, John, flying out to these different places around the world to bring our soldiers home? The only place we went to was Italy to bring our soldiers back Barry in Italy was the land, which was very great because we were in lovely sunshine. <laughs> we would stay a couple of nights and wait until the plane was far up. But travelling up to the Sudan and Egypt was a different kettle of fish. There were troubled areas. That's why we were flying up there. I flew over a thousand hours altogether. Wow. Over 900 of those hours was on Lancaster. If I can just ask you one final question. As we go through this period of national crisis, what lessons do you think we can take from the Second World War? Mainly to consider other people. So we need a society to come together. You're right. Going back to the First World War, Mm. there were very hard times then. People were living in poverty, absolute poverty. And families were living in two up and two down with about eight kids and that sort of thing. I used to look out of my window and see men queuing up at the local factory wanting to get a job and just be turned away. And if they were late getting to work, they were shut out immediately and then another person would be taken in. But there used to be queues around about 20 people open to get a job. That's how it was after the First World War and most people living from hand to mouth. There was a huge sense of community, wasn't there? Yes, it brought a lot of sense of community where people would help people out. And again, as I always smile about, you never saw anybody walking about with holes in their knees. (laughs) Rich jeans. (laughs) Even though they couldn't afford anything. (laughs) It's the fashion today, John, they're fashion holes. Well, I still don't believe it. I still can't believe it. I think it's absolutely stupid. I do, honestly. Holes out of choice, I think. But I think you make a really important point there that our country and in fact across the world we've been through far worse times and if we can get through those then we can get through today as well. As kids we used to walk round and we used to talk to these people on a nice day when they sat outside knitting and sewing and that's mm. what they did. You'd stand and have a chat with them or they'd stop you and have a chat mm. and that's how it was. It mm. was strange. People and knew one another more. And I remember we'd wandered off to where Burton Wood, before Burton Wood was even built. And it was all fields. And we were coming back one day and it was pouring down with rain. And we saw a gate open and we ran into this driveway and stood under this great big tree. Within minutes, a lady came running out of the house with an umbrella and told us to follow her quickly. So we did into the house. She sat us in front of the fire, bought us a cup of tea, gave us cakes and then asked us where we lived and she knew where our shop was. I lived in a shop in Warrington and that's how it was. And she told us then, you shouldn't stand under a tree when it's lightning because that could kill you. (laughs) We didn't even know about that. But we arrived home very late that night and it was getting dark. My mother was waiting outside the shop, looking very worried, (laughs) I can remember. And people helped each other, there's no doubt about it. But of course, you see, people lived and worked together, more or less, and trusted each other. Even though they were poor, they trusted each other. 
and there was nobody coming in by cars and no, things like that. Door. We didn't even lock the shop door. Or the till. We had no till. Say, it was <laughs> just a, a drawer at the back of the counter. You're much more accountable in a small community, though, aren't you? Yeah. So Absolutely. Yeah. So trust, community accountability and a bit of togetherness as well and actually when reading your book this is something that comes across when you're talking about after the first world war and this book is not just a book about war but also about the history of great britain as well perhaps we can just finish by asking you where can people get a hold of and read the boy with only one shoe an illustrated memoir of wartime life with bomber command from amazon and then my daughter, Caroline, has a lot of people asking for books to be autographed. So she does all that as well. Yes, so you can get hold of me by email, caroline at jhmeller.com, and I'll arrange a signed copy of my dad's book. Fantastic. And we can follow you on Twitter as well, can't we? You can, That's yes. Right. Dad's yes. got a Twitter <laughs> account and or Facebook. Yes. On Twitter, it's jhmeller. And on Facebook, it's The Boy With Only One Shoe. I didn't write that book to be sold. I wrote that book oh, because yeah. my son-in-law asked me to write it so that his daughter, okay. Steph, could read it and realise how life has changed from the 1920s and during the war until today. Well, thank you so much for doing it. And thank you to all three of you for putting the effort to release this book, which is in support of the RAF Benevolent Fund. And thank you so much for taking the time to chat as well. Oh, thank you very much. Lovely to meet you. Lovely to meet you. Nice to meet you. You're very charming. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, James. Great. Thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. 
And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.